Keeping you informed on the political landscape of Polk County. From the newsroom of the Lakeland Ledger, this is the Politics in Polk podcast. Hi, this is Lenore DeVore, editor of The Ledger. Joining me today to interview Adam Putnam, Commissioner of Agriculture and candidate for governor of the state of Florida, are Brian Burns, publisher of The Ledger Media Group, Bill Thompson, editorial page editor, and reporter Kevin Buffard. It is Thursday, October 26th, and Adam Putnam is in the middle of his campaign for governor. We invite you to listen as we interview Mr. Putnam. I believe that Floridians want a leader who knows our state, who knows every corner of our state, what our problems are, what our challenges are, and someone who can bring people together to solve those problems. And... Uh, So whether that's in natural resources or education or juvenile justice or whether it's responding to disaster, Um, you know, Florida's not Rhode Island. I mean, we're in Hurricane Alley. We've had terror attacks. You know, I believe that, that my background and experience managing crisis, wildfires, hurricanes, public health crises like Zika, things, you know, saving the key deer in the Florida Keys. I mean, all of those things in various ways prepare you for uh, what people expect out of a governor of the third largest state in the nation. So some would say education is a big crisis of a different sort, of course. But what are you going to do if you're elected to help uh, Polk State? Because obviously they lost a lot of funding for their Lake Whale Center this year, and I know Angela Falconetti is already devising a plan to try to get that money back, and also public education, because that seems to be an area that needs a lot of attention. Well, uh, that is the core of my uh, campaign in terms of our state community colleges, because they've been, they've taken a sharp stick in the eye for the last several years. Okay. It's not about pitting a university system against a state college system. We need, we need both, and we've come a long way in our higher ed system. Florida State's now in the top 25, UF's now in the top 10. A state the size of Florida needs more than one university in the AAU. But we're producing triple the number of degrees at our state college system as we are in our university system, and they've been neglected. I'm a product of our Florida public schools. My four children are in Bartow Public Schools. I've seen the things that we've changed that are working. I've seen the things that are not. And and it's been a long time since we had a governor who either was a product of our schools or had and had children in our schools. And um, and and I think that that gives me a lot of credibility to call balls and strikes about what's working and what's not working. I am. Uh, you know, Melissa taught kindergarten in Auburndale, bef- uh, you know, before I went to Congress. Uh, I have a lot of teachers in the family, and I'm a huge supporter of public education. If we're going to have the kind of diverse economy that we want in Florida, something that is more resilient, uh, something that is built on, that, that adds on to the pillars of tourism, agriculture, and, and home building, if we want to produce more nurses, which is the number one job vacancy in the state of Florida, They're going to come from our state college system. They're going to come from places like Polk State more than from UF or FSU. The folks who are going to be the next generation of diesel mechanics, truck drivers, precision welders and fabricators, the avionics and aviation industries that are surrounding what Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos are doing on the Space Coast, the shipbuilders and the maritime manufacturers of the $10 billion contract that the Coast Guard just gave to, to a Panama City shipbuilder. If we're going to fill those jobs, the skills are going to come from our state college system. So uh, from day one, rebuilding and supporting our community and state colleges will be a passion of mine because that's the only way we're going to rebuild the middle class and diversify our economy. And that is as important to a small town as it is to the inner city. You're gonna rebuild both of those through the skill sets that will come from the education that they get that's close to homes, it's local, accessible, affordable, and flexible. 
So that nursing student at Polk State, that's not a 19-year-old kid who graduated from Lakeland last spring. That is, a, that is most likely a single mom in her early 30s juggling at least one, if not two, jobs and raising children of her own. And, and so that's not a normal uh, traditional student profile. That's what that state college system is designed to serve. Does supporting education, what does that mean for vouchers and uh, charter schools? Well, I think those are all uh, important parts of, of choice, educational choice in Florida. Uh, but they should not come at the expense of uh, the traditional public school option. I think that our one of the big changes in schools since I was in school is that you now have a situation where, well, like the other night, Polk County Schools hosted an event uh, for middle schoolers, <clears throat> and the high schools were competing. They're, they're all making a pitch to parents, competing for your child to come to their school. When In the spring, starting in about April, there will be political-sized yard signs at the drop-off in the middle schools recruiting students to different schools. Is your child interested in law enforcement or military? Apply by X date to go to Summerlin Academy. Is your child interested in the performing arts? Apply to Harrison. Is your child interested in accelerated education? Apply to the IB or to the Cambridge program, which is what Winter Haven has. When I was in school, the only people getting recruited were pitchers and quarterbacks. Yeah. Yeah. And so those are all there to meet the varying needs, not just of different families, but different kids within a family. And charter and homeschool and magnet are all part of that. But we need, I think, the, the, the governor has an obligation to make education, to, to be the moral leader on education issues. Well, the, the, the critics of both vouchers and charter schools argue that you are taking away money from public schools to fund those programs. I mean, do you disagree? They, they are public schools. They recently have been taking a... Well, dis- vouchers, not necessarily. Okay, well, let me, let me start with charters. So they... It is important that if more money is going into the capital budget, that it be apportioned equivalent to the ratio of traditional to non-traditional schools. And that has not been the case recently. Uh, If you look at the Step Up for Students scholarships, which are not a voucher, but they are a scholarship for students that have passed the court muster, their success rate's been astounding. I mean, they, they, are, they are making enormous gains for low-income and minority students, and it's really something, I think, to be, to be proud of. Uh, it doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that I'm not supportive of traditional schools. That's where my kids are, but it's hard to argue that if you have a perennially failing school, while we have an obligation to do everything we can to bring that school up to snuff, Every day that goes by that we're trying something new to bring that school up, somebody's child is falling further behind, and they ought to have an option to go someplace that's best for their third grader at that particular moment in time. Okay, what about vouchers? They can be used at private schools. We don't have vouchers anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I stand corrected. I thought we did. So where do you find more money for education? I mean, I know the budget is tight. It's a battle every year. Everyone's wanting more money. And, I mean, especially the teachers right now, especially in our county where they've been at impasse for a year. Where does more money come from the state to help the teacher, and especially in either PICO funds or more fund or different ways for the local school districts to get money to fund building? And you, t- you talked about home building before. You know, this is something we're going to focus on next year because all these new homes are going to attract a lot more kids in our county, and they're going to have to start building new schools, I would imagine, before too long. Well, and Polk County has a, a very good reputation for being one of the more efficiently, cost-efficient new buildings in the state. I mean, we're one of the most energy-efficient and one of the leanest on new construction, and that's a it's kind of a long-running legacy of Polk County and something to be proud of. I'll give you a great example. As Ag Commissioner, uh, 
you know, we also have the uh, state's energy office in, in our oversight. And one of the things we discovered several years ago, so the way that we pay for uh, the way that we fund PICO in Florida substantially, not exclusively, but substantially, is through landline telephone taxes. I mean, it's the definition of a diminishing revenue base. So you're building a classroom on a, on a community college or a university <clears throat> that almost, no, almost none of the students in that building have a landline anymore, mm -hmm. and yet they're, you're dependent on that revenue base to maintain the current building inventory and build the new ones. So, number one, that's got to change. And and so, three years ago, I actually uh, worked with Speaker Weatherford because working on the energy issues, we have a situation in Florida where Florida at that time was charging a sales tax on the commercial purchase of electricity. No other state in the southeast had one. Most of them didn't have one at all. The ones who did had it at a much lower rate than what Florida has. So we cut it in half, but dedicated the remaining half to PICO. Uh, our deferred maintenance is in the hundreds of millions system-wide. Obviously, there's needs for new buildings system-wide, K-12 K plus state colleges plus universities. That's, that formula is funding all of that except residence halls. And um, so that's a specific example where we got creative. We found a dedicated revenue stream that is bondable. And, and it, at that time, I'm sure it's gotten better because the economy's gotten better since then, but at that time it was worth between 140 and $160 million a year in cash going into PICO you bond it, it's, it's worth even more. So, look, in, a, in an $82 billion budget, uh, it's all about setting priorities, um, and education is a priority. Uh, the people who, uh, there are counties that are good examples in various ways. Some counties are really lean on their construction side. Some counties are really good about some of the uh, curriculum that they're using. Some are outstanding about the technology that they're using. Uh, that saves money on textbooks. I mean, there are ways for us to use best practices and and free up money to go into education, which is the fundamental, other than, other than leading in a disaster, the fundamental responsibility of a governor day in and day out in a state is education. Can you give us an idea of how much more you would like to spend on education, either as a percentage of current spending or in actual dollars. Well, you have to stay tuned for as we roll out our uh, as our we roll out our policies. But you know, one of the things that's concerning about the budget is how you know education used to be the number one piece of the budget, and it has been overtaken by healthcare, which is substantially out of our control. Um, in terms of what does or does not happen in Washington and how that drives a piece of the budget that's now over 30% of the spending and now a greater portion of spending than what education is. And so, um, you know, a, a swing one way or the other on policies in Washington is a multi-billion dollar swing that impacts everything else in the budget. Are you saying you're going to have uh, some type of policy proposal out uh, during the campaign, and when might we expect that? Yeah, stay tuned, Kevin. <laughs> well, is it going to come out during the campaign then, or what? Well, I, there's there's no question that we will have that we will be rolling out along the lines of what I've said on state and community colleges, as well as pre-K through 12. In, in where I would like to see the state move. But, but I mean, will you put some numbers to that? I think you can look forward to some specificity on that. Okay. So you mentioned health care. Mm -hmm. What would you like to do in a perfect world if you had control over it in the state of Florida? What would your answer be? That, that there not be a one-size-fit-all out of Washington. I think that the, the fundamental block grant notion is the right one because the diversity of our population, the, the healthcare needs of our population are different than they would be of Rhode Island or Kansas or wherever. 
and and so the idea of maximizing the flexibility to the states to meet the needs of their population is is paramount. The formula for that has to be adjusted from where the last version was in Washington, which would have shortchanged Florida. And and that's a problem. And that's a that's always been a problem for Sunbelt states. And and I'm just if you if you look at the number of uh, graduate medical education residencies, it's skewed to the northeast, not to the southeast. If you look at the VA funding, it's skewed away from the Sun Belt. All of your recent fast-growing states struggle under funding formulas, transportation, veterans, you name it, that tend to be 60 or 70-year-old formulas that are still um, helping the New Yorks and the New Jerseys and the Ohios and the Illinois of the world more than they are the, the Georgias and the North Carolinas and the Floridas of the world and the Arizonas of the world hmm. where the growth has moved. Where are we on uh, hurricane aid? Not where I'd like to be. Um, as you know, uh, the Congress passed their second round of disaster aid which did not include any uh, agricultural disaster relief for Florida. It certainly included the, the traditional mechanisms to replenish the flood insurance program, replenish FEMA, but um, our efforts now have pivoted and we're working with uh, you know, Congressman Rooney and Congressman Ross have been staunch leaders in the delegation for us on this. And both senators have been terrific to work with as well. But because we missed that opportunity, we're now focused on the next round, which my understanding from OMB uh, could could come before Thanksgiving. Uh, whether or not Congress hits that deadline, who knows? But that's that's the the new goal is to be in that round. The um, what what can I? Why do you think they would not put? Ag relief in the current bill. What was the roadblock? The, the reason they gave was timing. That um, they had already essentially buttoned up the bill on the replenishment of the existing programs. What we were asking for is is a little outside the norm. I mean, it's not it's not the same as just putting more money in FEMA, it is asking for agricultural disaster resistance outside of the, the, the hurricane relief channels. So that was that was one piece of it. And I think um, there was also concern that if they added something, even though even though I believed that they could have had an ag bill that would have affected Florida and Texas and Puerto Rico. The perception was that it was a Florida bill and the Texans then sort of bowed up and they were running down the clock and they didn't want to blow open the... They didn't want to renegotiate that bill, I think was part of the, uh, the issue. So I think that they, uh, they now will have... They will have now had several weeks to digest the economic losses to verify them, they're gonna. There's gonna have to be another bill given the need in Puerto Rico, and so uh, I'm I'm still cautiously optimistic. Have right. Have you or Rooney or Ross or anybody spoken to either the president, the speaker, the Senate president, and gotten any assurances uh, that? Some ag relief for Florida is coming. We've uh, we have, and we have gotten assurances that the next round is the round that we will be included in. Adam, as a, as a citrus grower yourself, do you see a future without citrus in Florida, specifically orange juice? I mean, what do the next ten years look like? Because it was bad enough with greening, the price it costs per acre to grow with fertilizer and all that stuff, and now you have Irma on top of it. And just as a consumer, it looks pretty bleak from where I sit, that I'm going to be drinking Florida orange juice 15 years from now. 
uh, you'll be drinking Florida orange juice 15 okay. years from now. You'll be drinking Florida orange juice 80 years from now. Uh, the industry will continue to uh, adjust. Uh, we're a long way from going back to being a 240 million box industry. But the demand has changed for orange juice also. So, you know, it, it, it will continue to evolve. But <clears throat> the, the punch in the gut of Irma was more painful because we had learned that we could grow a crop of citrus in the face of greening, which was very positive news. I mean, the reason why everyone was so excited and in a good mood for the first time in 10 years. I mean, you saw it, Kevin. The, 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 yeah. the hope and the optimism about what this crop was going to be right. was proof that even without a cure for greening, we could grow a crop of fruit that's bigger this year than it was last year. And so that's not going to change. That's still going to be the case tomorrow and, we're, and, and, and next year. And we're not going to have a hurricane every season. So that's number one. Fundamentally, growers know they can do it. And, and so um, as people shake off this loss, and it's why the relief is, is important to keep mid-sized growers in the business, uh, you will see replanting occur. Um, and you will continue to see, you know, you're going to continue to see growth in the southwest part of the growing region. Um, you know, Immokalee and LaBelle are now the, you know, sort of the, the top producers. And you'll see citrus continue to play a very big role in Polk County. But, but you'll see development pressure in Polk County that you don't see in Glades or DeSoto or... Hendry County, so, uh, but but citrus will still be around, and uh, we need to make sure that we can, that we need to make sure consumers know that. I mean, we've got a, a little bit of a, of a marketing opportunity here to say that you know citrus is here for the long haul, and uh, and it is still the the most wholesome and best best thing that you can give your kids in the morning before you send them off to school. But after the 0405 hurricanes, it took a couple seasons for the trees to recover because they had been defoliated and all that. I mean, do you, don't you expect that to happen again, uh, particularly since Irma damage was so widespread? Uh, I've said that. I mean, you've got groves that were underwater for a week. Right. That's not the case on the ridge, right. but it's certainly the case in the flatwoods. Yeah. So there will be elements of this of this storm that are multi-year in peril, and that's baked into our economic loss estimate. Mm -hmm. um, so that's so yeah, but that doesn't change the fact that citrus is still going to be be around in Florida for a very long time, and over time we will find a way to deal with greening. I'm not saying that there's a silver bullet or pixie dust mm -hmm. out there, yeah. but we will find a way to deal with that. And that, and when that happens, you will see, I think, institutional investors move into Florida, which we saw in the 80s, uh, who will help to drive the new plantings in the um, southwest part of the state. So that's when you see the insurance companies move in and folks like that who used to be big players in the industry. I mean, Prudential used to have a big grove and you know, those kind of those kind of players that can bring money that the average situation. But aren't aren't those the guys that are already come in and they're the big? It's the big growers that are doing most of the replanting. The 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 guys with a thousand or two acres seem not to be doing it but you have like a Lico that that investment company that came in and bought a Lico and everything so they've been fairly aggressive they've but, been aggressive Duda's been aggressive Becker's right, been aggressive right. but those are all like the huge guys but but they're real so you've got you know, we can parse out the future of the citrus industry but a Lico is that's an investment group Dude does not. They're real Florida farmers. Yeah. Becker's a real Florida farmer. Yeah. The Hunt brothers are real Florida farmers. So, you know, we we need 
we need big guys, medium-sized guys, and little guys to to have an industry large enough to support the three brands, Coke, Pepsi, and Florida's Natural. Commissioner, can I go back to the aid package for a minute? Yeah. Uh, what do you see that looking like? Is that going to be like direct payments, will be loans? Have you heard anything about what that might look like? So the, the language directs the secretary to administer the program, and, and it would be up to the USDA to to really draw up the details of who qualifies and how much you get if you had crop insurance and what the different rate is if you didn't have crop insurance. And we assume that it is based on the precedent that was set after the 2004 and 2005 hurricanes. And, and that program was tiered. So it would say if you had from, you know, I'm just speculating here, but if you had 80 to 100% loss, your payment is X, 60 to 80, and so forth. And then if you hadn't bought crop insurance, you weren't eligible for as much as the people who had made the use of all the risk management tools that were out there. And you've got a different rate for citrus than you do for vegetables, than you do for shade houses and nursery and landscape industries. And um, and so that's what we assume the model will be, but USDA would be directed to, would to it, design Would it be payments that. or would it be a loan? Those were payments. Those were payments, okay. So switching gears, I get a lot of press releases from your office, so you've been very active in um, trying to streamline some of the services to consumers. What do you see, and I mean, I just got one a couple hours ago about another county and concealed weapon permits. So that's kind of what I'm talking about, making it easier for people to get those. Um, more convenient. It's more convenient, than correct. Different right? than easier. More convenient, right. Um, and a lot of online stuff, things that you could never do online, we're now, I feel like we're in the 21st century. We're getting there. We're like the mid-20th so far. Okay, well, you know, it's room to grow. <laughs> so what? where do you see the biggest challenges and the biggest opportunities if you were to become governor? Like, what really needs to be focused on? And then I'm going to follow that up with public records. So, so um, I'm assuming from the sort of your preface to your question, you mean what do we need to focus on in terms of government operations and right. efficiency? Not right. necessarily policy, but how do you get government to run more efficiently as an in, as an entity? Exactly. To help residents. For instance, people who apply for FEMA, and I know that's not state, but I mean, it, it's a nightmare to go through that process. So if you were to run something like a FEMA program following a hurricane, you know, what is out there that really needs the governor to take a look at or get an agency to say, you need to do better because this is not working? We, the state government is, is way behind in the use of technology for people to transact business. So, you know, if you go to the elementary school library, your children may or may not encounter a librarian. They go get the book that they want, they take their lanyard out, swipe their student ID, pull the ray gun out of the desk at the librarian, shoot the back cover of the book, and now the school knows that your child checked out Goodnight Moon in the first grade. Uh, if you go to, uh, if you send an inspector in to uh, inspect the, uh, the folks making fried chicken strips in the corner restaurant of a gas station, they're walking in there with a clipboard, a pencil, and, and a piece of paper. Uh, our, uh, you know, Jimmy Petronas may have talked to you all about this before, you know, the, the state's accounting system is it's like 40 years old. And, and the legislature doesn't want to go spend, you know, the, institutionally they're reluctant to invest in long-term technology projects, in part because the state's been burned over the years and there's been mismanagement and, and they've lost a lot of money on some high-profile projects, so they don't want to risk that, and in part because they're not going to be around long enough to see, to, to, to get the credit for it working if it's an eight-year or ten-year build-out. So that is an area where we have to get better. Um, 
we, we, you know, we should be sending inspectors in with tablets, not clipboards. Uh, there ought to be, you know, the vast majority of transactions ought to be online. Uh, and that's something that we've done within the department. When I came in, to use your example on CWLs, we had eight offices spread around the state, and there was a four-month wait to get a license or, there, you know, something like that. Um, rather than me opening up yet another office in the towns, paying rent, paying people, buying equipment, furnishing it, we partnered with tax collectors who already have offices, already have people, have a vested interest in good customer service, and so for the price of a computer and printer in each of those offices, we went from eight offices to 43 offices just by partnering with folks who are already interacting with the public every day. That's just good common sense. And, uh, and there's a lot of room for improvement on those types of things. So in getting records online, I mean, of course, that's something that we are very interested in. And but it seems like the legislature wants to keep killing our sunshine public record laws. I mean, every year there are new exemptions. And I know that comes through the legislature, but what can you do to help the press, the people, everyone who uses public records, to, I mean, to stop killing our rights as journalists and as residents? You know, I, I think in my seven years running the department, I think we've got a, a very good reputation for being responsive, for being rapid, for being thorough, um, for putting as much online as, as you can possibly have online and, and having it in a searchable format. I think that when the public can do that, it, it helps you identify waste and fraud and other things. Um, you know, I, I think that there are very few needs for exceptions to the law. Occasionally there's something that comes across the bow that is pretty unique and, and generally there's kind of an agreement that you're protecting a witness or you're protecting a child or you're protecting students or something like that. But, you know, I don't see the need for more than, you know, I, I could come up with a handful of scenarios at any given time where you'd say, yeah, we probably need to close that. but. That's, that would be the rule, not the exception. I mean, that would be the exception, not the rule. We really need help in that regard for no more exemptions and, you know, the, just the, the killing of the law that's made us famous, yeah. you know, around the country. And I know Barbara Peterson fights the good fight. And you're right, there are some, I mean, Dale Earnhardt comes to mind. Yeah, that, was, that was the one that kind of came to my mind, was like, yeah, we don't really need to publish his autopsy photos. Right. I would agree with that. <clears throat> um, I'll give you an example that's not, it's kind of something we, we saw on, the, um, on that as well. There's a little bit of a cottage industry on lawsuits involving public mm -hmm. records. Yes. So we had a lady, I think she was in Perry or Live Oak. I mean, she worked in a forestry station that's smaller than this office. And a guy walked in randomly to the tiny little town. They don't they don't get visitors. They don't they don't deal with customers. I mean, they they call people call in for burn permits. That's what she does, and she dispatches firemen. So a guy walks in one day and says, um, "Hey, I'd I'd like to have a copy of your uh, either the deed or the lease for this property." And she said, "You know, well, honey, I." I don't have any idea where that is, but if you'll give me your name and number, I'll find it, find the person who can answer it, and I'll call you when I find it. Well, she just violated the law. You cannot ask someone for their name. Yeah, right. So here she thought she was being responsive and customer-oriented and all that, and she just broke the law. And we had another situation where somebody emailed a bunch of our employees, just not people who work in the Capitol, not supervisors, not senior leaders, just like a forester who has a at freshfromflorida.com email address. And it said something, the subject line was something like, um, I think the subject line was your email. And then the body of the text was something like, um, please forward me your last three email addresses, the last three emails you have received. 
if that doesn't sound like spam, I don't know what does. Like, I would not respond to that. That sounds sketchy. But it was a public records request, and so we got sued on both of those. Wow. Yeah, you're right. And one of those one of those people who's been accused of it is from Polk County. So we. Oh, really? Can I go on back to disaster aid? So you did a your department did a study that put the damages at like seven hundred sixty million for citrus, over two billion for all of Florida agriculture. We, so us and IFAS kind of work jointly on that. Yeah. Okay, but uh, I, the question is, uh, what are you asking for, and what do you expect to get? Do you want, I, I, do you I, want over two no, billion? Let me, no, let me be very clear that we put together within within three weeks of landfall. Yeah, we put together an economic estimate of damages to Florida yeah, agriculture. Right, it's preliminary. Some of the commodities will go up. Some of the commodities will go down, but Congress, the OMB in particular, USDA in particular, asked for an estimate to give them some sense of what the losses were. I have been very clear. I said this at the congressional delegation, the Florida delegation meeting. The estimate of $2.5 billion in losses is not our ask. We do not. I don't believe that there's a farmer out there who expects to be made whole in the aftermath of the hurricane. It is to drive home the scope of devastation to the agricultural industry. If you um, were to go back to 0405, which I believe would be a, a similar type of catastrophe paths was similar, going through the heart of agriculture lands and things like that, the ultimate cost of the relief was closer to a half a billion. I think it was 500 million exactly. Right. But I think that the losses were similar to these losses. I'd have to dig up the old study, but I bet it was in the billions. Um, yeah, I haven't seen so, that, but so, I have so, seen the stories. So, so we my point there. is... I am not asking for two and a half billion dollars in taxpayer funds to make Florida agriculture whole. But more than a billion? I mean, five hundred million—that was uh, thirteen years ago. So, more than a billion less. What? At this point, we're at goose egg. So, yeah. I'm for let, let's let's get something appropriated, and then we'll go work okay. with USDA to craft a program that's that helps people get back on their feet and is fair to. Um, fair to the to the taxpayer, the people who are hurting the most are not the growers and are not the ranchers. It's thousands of families in Immokalee and LaBelle who have nothing to go pick. Mm. Are you and uh, IFAS trying to refine that estimate before the next bill comes up? Well, now that we um, now that we'll have a little extra time to uh, refine it, it it will continue to be refined. Okay. Uh, as I said, uh, the you're continuing to see the fruit losses continue. We we continue to see fruit drop uh, as a result of the damage, the, the longer term damage done by the storm. So uh, you know, USDA has their estimate. They admit you know about where that came in in terms of timing. Other commodities. You know, you, you some of the vegetable guys may have been able to, if they had, if they had the means, they may have been able to turn around if they could get the water off their fields and replant to hit a Christmas window. The Thanksgiving window is substantially gone, so you're gonna you know, that'll adjust the cane that was laid down, but nobody really knew if it was going to be a total loss or if it, if you were still going to be able to harvest it. You'll have some better figures on that. You know, 45 days later, so. Yeah, we'll be able to refine it a little bit. Uh, Governor Scott, I think, pretty much every year sought some type of tax cut. Um, do you expect to continue with that, hold the line, or, God forbid, try to raise revenue? 
Well, you can you can put you can put in your notebook no on raised revenue. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, you know, I, I think that it's important. I mean, the reason why Florida's growing again, the reason why we've taken, you know, under Rick Rick Scott and all of us came in together and unemployment rate was almost 12%. Today it's less than 4%. It's 3.8% statewide. Some counties are in better shape than that. You're back to having net in-migration to the state to the tune of, on average, around 1,000 people a day. You had net out-migration in 2010. You had record numbers of tourists coming into the state. Home values continue to climb, which is good for ad valorem tax base, and it's good for dock stamp taxes. So, um, you know, the I am committed to building on the success that we have had as a state recovering from the Great Recession, which is that we want to be, we want to roll out the welcome mat for people who want to make this their home, start their businesses here, grow their businesses here. I want Florida to be more than just a prize for a life well lived someplace else. I want it to be the launch pad for the American dream. I want people to, um, to continue to make Florida their vacation destination, despite the fact that uh, you know, in a in an Expedia world uh, uh, where a millennial can get online on Thursday before their day off on Friday and find the cheapest airfare someplace else, they may or may not have the same loyalties to coming to Florida that their parents have had. So, you know, we, we need to be nimble and, and compete for that. We need to have a sustained commitment to fiscal restraint. You know, the difference between us and, and New York is pretty stark. We have essentially the same population as New York. We're just barely bigger than they are. And their state budget is roughly double the size of Florida's. Illinois has a $150 billion unfunded pension liability. Florida's is roughly 88 to 90% funded. We have the fewest state employees per capita of any state in the nation. Those are, those are long-term uh, indicators of fiscal restraint that allow us to put money into education or allow us to put money into springs restoration or allow us to put money into um, any number of things as the need arises, including savings. Because the state of Florida has a, a long history that we ought to be very proud of, of having a rainy day fund that helps us get through the Irmas of the world and helps us get through the housing collapses that happen from time to time. So, uh, you know, I'm a look. I'm a I'm a farmer. I'm a small businessman, and I'm cheap. And 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 that's what we're going to continue. But to I, I I guess it gets to the question of uh, can you can you uh, fund the increases in education that you want to do and continue to cut taxes? Well, not all tax cuts are created equally. Um, you know, I think that uh, tax relief that has a multiplier effect on the economy, either in generating new business or generating spending or generating economic activity that offsets that loss of revenue, is helpful. Admittedly, but uh, would you argue that tax cuts pay for themselves? I think the, the right, that smart tax cuts do. Switch gears again. Um, if Brian Haas decided that he was not going to prosecute any more cases that called for the death penalty, and you were governor, how would you handle that? I would call Brian and ask him what's wrong with him. <laughs> no. Uh, the, the, the key is if if a state attorney predetermines before the facts of the case are known, if they predetermine as a matter of their own personal judgment that they will not pursue a capital case as allowed by law in the state of Florida, that's a problem. Okay. May I ask them totally different? <laughs> it's your, it's your <laughs> meeting. Governor Scott seems to have a really good relationship with the president. The president has said some nice things about Congressman DeSantis who might run against you from the primary. Have you dealt one-on-one -on -one with the president, and what is your relationship like with him? I, I've not. I've, um, 
I've not had the occasion to to work with him. Okay. And uh, so I don't have the you know pres- uh, Governor Scott had a pre-existing relationship with him before either one of them were in public life. Right. Right. Okay. So kind of following up on that, and this is a question from one of our reporters about um, the tweets. So he said, on Twitter, you have devoted attention to issues that seem outside the realm of the Florida governor, such as accusing CNN of being fake news and applauding President Trump for his criticism of NFL players who take a knee during the national anthem. Why are you taking such an approach with your Twitter posts? It's what everybody's talking about. I mean, who's not talking about the national anthem story? But does that have anything to do, any connection with being governor of Florida? Well, Either of those issues? Well, they do if you have uh, Florida teams and taxpayer-funded stadiums who ask for other things in a state that I believe should be the most veteran-friendly state and military-friendly state in the nation. So what can you do for veterans? You talked about us, about the national picture and not funding veterans, and yet we have James Haley, you know, 30 minutes away. Yeah. I mean, how... how 30 minutes, you must drive fast. Yeah, well, <laughs> just ask FHP. Um, they're not my friends. Um, <laughs> so, uh, seriously, what, what can you do to help veterans and try to get more money into the likes of the VA centers sure. in the state? So, uh, supporting our veterans is enormously important to me and and even in my current role I have I have proven that uh, as a cabinet member we have pushed to expand the number of veterans nursing homes in Florida and we have fought with Washington and, and now won under the new administration uh, to move forward with the construction of a new nursing home and to convert uh, surplus veterans facility that's in Baldwin Park in Orlando into a new nursing facility for Florida veterans. We, um, in my first year as commissioner, I created and pushed through the legislature, so I'd help. I'm not saying I did it all by myself, but it was my initiative to create Operation Outdoor Freedom, Mm -hmm. which has served over 3,200 veterans with over 400 events on public and private lands and including Congressional Medal of Honor recipients, veterans from every war who are still living. And, uh, and it has been an, an exceptional program. We are, to my knowledge, we are the only state in the country that has dedicated facilities on public lands for hmm. wounded veterans. They're, assess- they're handicap accessible, they're devoted to their comfort uh, one's in here in Polk County on Lake Kissimmee, and one is uh, where Horse Creek hits Peace River. It was a, a piece of property that Mosaic purchased as mitigation for a mine that they tried to make a state park, and DEP said, we don't want it, and I said, well, I do, I do, I'll take it, and we're going to do some great things with it for, for veterans, and then we also work with FWC to do youth hunts there. We've also... Um, after the shooting in Chattanooga in the uh, National Guard Armory, we've expedited the processing of concealed weapons licenses for veterans uh, and have handled over 80,000 of those. Uh, and we also waive the uh, fees for veterans who are transitioning into civilian life or for their spouses if they're stationed here. So if you get moved to McDill and your wife is a surveyor, we'll waive that original business application or business registration fee in our department. Uh, so those are all things that even in my, in my world now we have done, and it's indicative of what I would do across the state uh, to support our veterans. I think that from an economic development perspective, veterans are a strategic initiative in accomplishing what we want to accomplish as a state. So if I, when you have a, um, a 52-year-old retired full bird colonel who settles in the panhandle, why wouldn't you want that person to be 
a leader in your community as quickly as possible, as a principal, as a teacher, as a business person, as a hospital administrator, whatever. So um, when we first came in in, in 2010, 2011, one of, our, one of my first requests was that we do a cabinet meeting over there, and, and they would kind of rock bottom. I mean, they were, it was a lot of hand-wringing, what are we going to do? And, and, and the shuttle program had ended, and they were um, in, in pretty bad way over there. You fast forward to where they are today, and they're sometime before now, before the end of the year, the uh, the manufacturing facility will be done, mm. uh, and they will be running up to, I'm told, sixty launches a year mm. on the private side. Well, you and I both know. NASA would still be arguing over procurement language to just right. to figure out who's going to go build the next generation of vehicle. Right. And in that period of time, these two billionaires who are in their own little arms race are bringing more of the supply chain of space to Florida than we ever had with NASA. I mean, we lit the fuse. Mm-hmm. Houston had control. Huntsville right. did the rockets. Cal right. Poly did the R&D. Now we've got a situation where they're going to manufacture in Florida refurb in Florida, launch in Florida, which is all the prep for launch, right. recycle that space vehicle in Florida, and then relaunch it more than once a week on average. So that is incredibly exciting. Uh, and with that is coming, you know, some of what's going on at Spacecom, plus what's going on on the uh, traditional aviation side with Northrop Grumman. So... I am more excited today about the space program in Florida than I've ever been, and if and it, and we are now less dependent on a new a change in administration and what they decide to do or not do with NASA and and a future BRAC and all those kinds of things because now these investors have made the decision that Florida is where they're going to build the next generation of their business. So. I'm hopeful that Congress will put NASA back in the space business, put America back in the space business, and and we, we're going to have to fight for that business because Maryland wants it, Texas wants it, Alaska wants it. It's not, it's not just ours because it has always been there. We're going to have to fight for it. But I think we're in a better position and a healthier position to go get that business with what's going on in commercialization than we ever have been. You've already mentioned some places where you think we ought to be spending more. Where should we be spending less? Well, keep in mind that we're bringing in, you know, in a growing economy, we continue to bring in additional revenue. Uh, and so, you know, I think that you always have to reevaluate your priorities based on circumstances. Are you recovering from a hurricane? Are you recovering from a housing collapse? Uh, do you have... Uh, you know, have you, do you have an opportunity to, um, you know, is, is, is this the year to uh, give first responders the pay raise that they haven't had in six years? Uh, or, or do we need to, uh, based on juvenile justice trends, adjust where we're spending money in juvenile justice and move to a transition, you know, more of a, um, you know, a, a education and, and workforce training program and, and, do something different than what we're doing now with with fight clubs uh, I think the answer is you, you evaluate that year in and year out um, but you know you Florida is a state subject to external events more than a lot of other places and, and this year is a great example of that well but I mean Republicans always like to talk about shrinking government where would you shrink government state government you're going to be the head of it, presumably. You might be the head of it. Well, I, I think that um, when you look at some of the waste that we have seen in a million-dollar contract to Pitbull that you couldn't get the answer to mm-hmm. in a public mm-hmm. records request, right. uh, I would never, even though I support Visit Florida, I would never have supported a million-dollar contra- million secret contract to Pitbull. Uh, there's one example for you. Pretty I think when thing. you look at um, 
I think if you look at the things that we are doing in how we procure, uh, there are savings to be had. I'm not at all happy with uh, how DMS is spending their money on a $75 million uh, retrofit to the to the state capital parking garage. Uh, I think that if you look at the waste in our contracts and procurement, there is ample opportunity for someone to to find real money in the in the uh, hundreds of millions, if not more, that can be redirected to priorities like education, like the environment, like infrastructure. And infrastructure is increasingly going to be a part of what we have to do to protect Florida, keep Florida, Florida. Can I ask you anything, Commissioner? Um, if we stay out of the Paris Accord, there's probably be a lot more pressure on the next governor to do something about climate change, especially along the coasts. What are your thoughts on climate change and what can Tallahassee do about it, if anything? Well, I mean, I think you have to recognize that as a state that wants two-thirds wetlands and has an extraordinarily long coastline, we, we have to be resilient. And we are clearly seeing examples uh, of impact uh, in Florida where we have to move well fields inland, where you have more routine uh, flooding during the keen tides. Uh, and so my view on that is to view it as an engineering challenge and try to avoid the ideological toxins that have gripped Washington and prevented anything from moving forward. I, I'm not interested in decapitating the job market in Florida so that the United States can transfer $3 billion to another country who is competing with us for our jobs. But I am for recognizing that there are things that we should be doing to protect our economy, to protect our coastline, and protect our people. And that means that's going to mean water infrastructure where we're uh, relocating and raising you know, stormwater systems. It means, again, you know, relocating well fields. It means uh, engineering better bulwarks uh, in, in our bays and in our canals to, uh, uh, to protect our cities that are on the coast, which are all of our biggest cities except Orlando are on the coast. And, um, and, and creating an environment, you know, the type of business climate for Floridians to be able to thrive uh, and have an, an, an economy where people will, will make this their launch pad, regardless of, of uh, what does or doesn't happen at the UN or does or doesn't happen in Washington. It's, a, it's an engineering challenge that we have to deal with. I mean, water is our golden goose. I mean, people come here for our beaches, they come here for our springs, they come here for our lakes and our rivers. You can't have agriculture without abundant water, you can't have tourism without it, you can't have growth without it. And, um, and so if you have saltwater intrusion, you've got big problems. If you, if you spoil your beaches, you've got big problems. We have to protect the things that make Florida, Florida, and that includes our wetlands. But there are lots of environmentalists <coughs> who say we cannot engineer ourselves out of climate change, that we have to start doing some mitigations. Do you just disagree with that? And I think that's what I just said, that you have to prepare the infrastructure to deal with it, but I'm not... But that's an engineering I mean, there's problem. environmentalists there's who live on salt water who say that. They haven't sold their house yet. <laughs> okay, but do you, you think we can engineer our way out of climate change difficulties and just skip any type of mitigation, conservation, switching to uh, I'm away that, from fossil fuels, those types that, of things. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that I'm focused on Florida and what Florida can do. And I'm not going to put Florida jobs at risk <coughs> if the rest of the world, if it's not going to have a meaningful impact. So I'm not going to handicap our economy or our job growth. Uh, but I am saying that there are meaningful infrastructure improvements we can make to improve Florida's resiliency. So I know you have to wrap up now, and we really, really appreciate your time with us. Um, any final comments that you want to make? Look, I'm just I'm, I'm thrilled to be um, part of, um, of an exceptional group of Polk Countyans who have sought this office. And, and I, as a fifth-generation Floridian, I'm mindful of 
the decisions that we make need to be the right decision for the long term for our state, not just the Band-Aid to get us through next year. Uh, I am uh, excited about how well the campaign's going. I am excited about my positive conservative vision for the state, beginning with workforce training and workforce development, career and technical education, but a whole host of issues that I've worked on over the years. And, and uh, I wouldn't trade Florida's problems and Florida's potential with any other state. I mean, I, there's a reason why people are moving here. There's a reason why people who've raised their families and built their businesses in places like Chicago can't leave fast enough, and it's not just the weather. They could have left a long time ago if it was just the weather. They recognize that their state government has, is so failed that, that there's no other choice but to leave, and they're increasingly selecting Florida. And I want to build on that, but I want to also build a Florida that's not only a magnet for some place, somebody from somewhere else, but it's the kind of Florida that our kids, whether they grow up in Bartow or they grow up in Hialeah or they grow up in downtown Jacksonville, they don't have to leave Florida to find a great job and find their peace in the American dream. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Awesome.